Father, we surrender all, as, as Gabriel just prayed to you through his fingers. We surrender all. May Jesus be front and center now so that we know to whom we are giving our all. We pray in his name. Amen. Another advantage of this lockdown is we're, learn- we're learning all kinds of new stuff. Have you noticed that? I tell you, I saw, I saw I'm having breakfast a few days ago, and I'm eating my banana. Karen comes along, she said, don't throw, that, don't throw those peels away. I said, what do you mean, don't throw the peels away? I would put them right under the kitchen sink like I'm supposed to. I get in trouble if I don't. She said, no, just leave them out. Okay. Next morning, I'm having, I, I eat a banana a day, seven days a week. So I'm, I'm having my next uh, breakfast banana. She comes walking by, she said, don't forget, save, that, save those banana peels for me. I said, listen, girl, what's up with this thing? She says, I have found out from a YouTube that banana peels are very valuable. They are? <laughs> That's news to me. Okay, I'll save them. So I watched what she did with them. She got a, a quart jar uh, full of water, and she, she shoves the banana peel in it, screws the lid on it, puts it out on our, front, our back porch, sits there, looks really bad. Come back the next day, she takes the next banana peel and she puts it in. Where's she getting all this? I'm telling you what, she's the resident Gen Zer. DIY, do it yourself. She's YouTube, I told you. She's learning all this. I says, What are you going to do with it? She says, Watch. She, she takes the lid off one day and then she begins to pour it on the plants, the geraniums that are on our deck. She says, This is potassium. It's good for the plants. Oh, brother. Are you serious? I had to look the word up last night because it's hard to pronounce, but I got it right here. Horticulturist, and according to the, uh, the web, an expert in garden cultivation and management. This morning in the brave new world of post-flood, three times we're going to a brave new world, three times it's post-flood, we're going to meet the world's first horticulturist. And oh my, is he good. Open your Bible with me, please. Let's go. Genesis chapter 9. I'm in the NIV. Any Bible you have nearby, grab it, please. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18, and the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth's number one. Shem is number two. Ham is the youngest boy. And Moses goes on, Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, this is a big deal because the Israelites who will read this story of the beginning, like a like a burr under the saddle or a thorn in the flesh, the Canaanites have just been driving them to distraction. So we're tracing them all the way back. Now, verse 20. No, no, verse 19. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Guess what? One of those three boys is your great, 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 whatever. One of them is. Has to be. The whole human race came from those three. Now, verse 20. Here we go. Noah, a man of the soil, horticulturalist. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. Oh, that's great language for us who live here in southwestern Michigan because this is vineyard country. There are vineyards everywhere. I don't know. It doesn't say, it doesn't say what kind of uh, vineyard he planted. What color were the grapes? Were they, were, they, were they red? Were they brown? Were they purple? Were they blue? Were they black? Were they green? Were they white? It doesn't say. Were, were, they, were they Concord? Were they Thompson? Were they Flame? Were they Ruby? It doesn't say. It just says he planted a vineyard. And by the way, he's the first human being to have ever planted a vineyard. Wow, that's pretty cool. 
Well, I don't know how many seasons go by, but he, and he's doing it somewhere down the, the, the uh, sides of Mount Ararat. So he's, he's, he's terraced out a vineyard somewhere, and this vineyard is successful. <laughs> wow. I don't know. Perhaps he erected a little chateau. Uh, you know, out of rocks left over from the flood and just piled them up and has this little, this little chateau beside the vineyard and, and it has the clay jars in it and he fills those clay jars with the juices of the different grapes that he's growing and he's, of course, the family loves the juices. He loves the juices. One day he comes to that little chateau and he reaches up and he grabs, he grabs a clay jar and he says, hmm, I want to try this one. And so he, he gets it and he tilts it back. <sighs> What is that? This has a bite to it. I want to try that a little more. This has a buzz to it. I don't know how he learned the word buzz. But you got it. And he kept drinking. Yep. And what happens? Before long... Noah's cognition is being affected in a way no human being's cognition has ever heretofore been affected. Something's happened to him. Verse 21. And when he drank some of its wine, that would be grape juice, he became drunk. Well, that's obviously fermented grape juice. He became drunk and lay uncovered, that means naked, inside his tent. Now, let's be clear about one thing. Nature invented fermentation. But the way the story is being told, we are being told more than the story appears to tell. There obviously is an evil mastermind who in his own laboratories has concocted what will become alcohol. And he's finally got a human to try it. Oh, boy. Thus begins the ill-fated journey of alcoholic inebriation for the human race. Jacques Ducan, in his, what I consider, masterful commentary on the first book of the Bible. This is for the Seventh-day Adventist International Bible Commentary, and he wrote the first volume, and I've read it cover to cover. He helped me see what's embedded in this Hebrew narrative that I would never have seen on my own. All right, maybe this would be interesting for you, too. Point number one, embedded there. The parallels, Jacques points this out. The parallels between drinking by Noah and the eating of the forbidden fruit by Adam subtly suggest a warning against that temptation of wine drinking. It's not grape juice drinking. It's fermented grape juice drinking. Something dreadfully wrong happens in both stories when the fruit is consumed, no matter how it's consumed. In the first story, the act of eating the fruit is clearly divinely forbidden. In the second story, The act of drinking from the fruit is now subtly, divinely forbidden. Hmm. Point number two, embedded. This divine indictment of fermented wine drinking may also be implied. Let me me just uh, stay close to what uh, Jacques Jacques's point here. It's also implied by the very fact that the first drinking ever recorded in the Bible is associated with shame and a curse. And by the way, may I tell you that the second drinking of wine, fermented grape juice, in the Bible is also associated with shame and a curse when Lot's daughters hoodwink him into becoming inebriated and then they have incestuous sex with their daddy. Yeah. The first two instances 
Something else is being taught to us here. Uh, number three, the specification of a beginning. So, so the line can be translated, Noah was a man of the soil and was the first to plant a vineyard. The, the, the specification of the beginning of this culture of wine, fermented wine, indicates it is outside the purview of the divine act of creation. This is something that was never intended. One more embedded point. This presumption, Dukan is making the point, perhaps explains why Daniel totally, totally refuses to drink a drop of wine in Babylon or be, be uh, diverted from a plant-based diet. Both of those acts, his pledge of loyalty to, to the God who created him. Ooh, I thought that was interesting. And of course, the Bible's subsequent warnings, and they are there, indicate that that drinking of fermented grape juice now speaks loudly as being condemned by the Creator himself. Now look at Obviously, Noah did not know the inebriating effects of this. He didn't know. How could he have known? He didn't know. But just because we don't know what the effects are of what we're doing doesn't make what we're doing right. Does that make sense? It's got to. Okay. Well, the plot thickens now. Ooh. Here we go. Verse 22. So he's drunk and he's naked inside the tent. Verse 22 now. Ham, the father of Canaan. We're being reminded again. Those... Those... Affliction bearers to the tri- to the community of Israel. They go all the way back to this. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked, and he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. And as they walked in backward, they covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way, so they would not see their naked father. They didn't see him at all. They just dropped that blanket down, and whew, Dad is covered now. Wow. Going on here. Uh, Robert Alter, just mentioned him a second ago. Three volume, one man translation of Hebrew. And I'm in the, in, in the first volume. I'm reading Genesis through right now in his uh, translation. He, he writes this, a little translation note, and I'm quoting him. No one has ever figured out exactly what it is that Ham does to Noah, okay? What's up with this? Lot's daughters, of course, take advantage of his drunkenness to have sex with him. But it is entirely possible that the mere seeing of a father's nakedness was thought of as a terrible taboo so that Ham's failure to avert his eyes would itself have earned him the curse. Now, Dukan compares, and Ham saw with Eve, and Eve saw the fruit. There's something in that seeing that is this, that is the the dramatic key to their downfalls. They saw it. They lingered. Huh. Patriarchs and Prophets comes along, and I'm telling you what, she doesn't say what it is, but her language could hardly be more explicit. Let me just read you one sentence. This is all that is said. The unnatural, so whatever is going on in that tent, the unnatural crime. So whatever's going on in that tent is not only unnatural, it is a crime. The unnatural crime of Ham declared that filial reverence, the reverence of a child for his or her parent, had long before been cast from his soul, and it revealed the impurity, whatever took place was impure, and the vileness, it was vile, of his character. Boy, you'll spend the rest of the Sabbath afternoon trying to figure that one out. I don't think we'll have to. The point is, when 
Ham goes back out to share the delicious details to his two older brothers. And their, their response, which is to take that blanket and do what they did, something's going on. Now, Noah awakens out of his stupor. What is this? This is uh, verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. Ooh. He didn't say, Cursed be Ham. Cursed be Canaan. This is not a blanket cursing of all of Ham's children. No, he didn't curse the others. Cursed be Canaan. Remember now, this is going to be the tribe. These will be the, these will be the pagans who, who will take Israel down again and again. Lot's two daughters took him down. Sodom and Gomorrah was a Canaanite city. The Moabites almost destroyed Israel just on the brink of the promised land. Canaanites again. The curse is not on Ham. You can't, you can't read it any other than it is. He picked out one of the children and said, watch this. Noah, in advance, divinely inspired, obviously, he traces forward the infestation of that sin, and the rest is history. Mm. So the curse is on Canaan, and now notice the blessing, verse 26, and Noah also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. He does not praise Shem. He does not praise Japheth. He does not praise or curse any of his boys, but he says, the God of Shem. Praise be to him. What's up? Ah, the God of Shem. Who is he? Oh, he's the rainbow covenant God, as we noted last week. He's the God of love who has chosen the line of Shem through which to bring a knowledge of himself to the human race. Praise be to that God. My. Verse 28, and after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. The end. But you want to see something really fascinating? I bet you do. I want to show it to you. Never saw this before in my life. Perhaps you haven't either. Dukan again, my friend Jacques. He says, I want you to no notice the parallels between the story of Adam and Noah. Never seen this, but let me run these by you. Uh, number one, Adam tends a garden. Noah grows a vineyard. Oh. Number two, Adam eats the fruit. Noah drinks the fruit. Oh. Number three, Adam as a result of his action is naked. Noah, as a result of his action, is naked. Number four, Adam's nakedness, of which he is not aware, is revealed. Noah's nakedness, of which he is not aware, is revealed. Number five, a covering is provided for Adam's nakedness. A covering is provided for Noah's nakedness. And finally, both stories end in the same way, with a curse and a blessing. Something's going on here. Something's being communicated to us. The infestation of the original sin carries on from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. Guess what? You can have a global flood, cover the world with water, scrub the earth clean, but the humans who disembark from the ark after that flood are still as infected as when they went onto that ark. The infestation is here. It's Adam, Noah, you, me. That's the point. We're all infected. The original sin, as it were, keeps on keeping on, and it just keeps on keeping on. My. So the compelling question is, how do we get out of sin's, sin's terrible lockdown? How do, we get, how do we break this? You probably have a family tree. I have a family tree. Which one of your sins came from your daddy? Which one came from your mommy? You know we've blamed them along the way. Come on. Unbreakable. 
Who's going to pick this lock? You remember Romans 5? I want to end with Romans 5. Come on. We were just in Genesis 9. Now we go to Romans, Romans 5. This is that, that uh, summit in the New Testament, certainly in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. I want to just read a line. Three lines to you. Three of them. Then you see where this little father to son to mother to daughter business is going. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. Who would that be? That would be Adam. And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Adam, Noah, you, me. We've all sinned. All of us. Every single blooming one of us have sinned. Now drop down to verse 15. But along comes the gift. And the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, that would be Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, overflow to the many? Oh, man, we, we, we've got two Adams going here. We have an Adam through which we all got lost thanks to our participation with him. And we have a second Adam through which we all can be saved. Drop down to verse 18. One more line. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, Adam, so also one righteous act, talk about Calvary and the cross, resulted in justification. That means to be pardoned, to be forgiven, to be legally declared. You are, you are emancipated. You are free. I've set you free. Even so, through one righteous act resulted in justification and life for how many people does your Bible say? Mine says all. Guess what? The entire human race emancipated by the gift of Calvary. The entire human race. I, am I reading something into this? I am not. The entire human race. My, 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 my. What's going on here? Ah. Uh, I had never heard of Juneteenth before, a week ago. A week ago, yesterday, was June 19, and it's called Juneteenth. All my life. How come nobody ever told me about this? A lot of people found out about it. What are you talking about, Dwight? Well, let me just read it to you. Juneteenth, okay, so I got this on the web. Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. Dating back to 1865, it was on June 19 that the Union soldiers, led by Major General Gordon Granger, landed at Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free. Please note that this is now two and a half years after President Abraham Lincoln has signed the Emancipation Proclamation that went into effect January 1, 1863. Two and a half years later, the slaves in Texas are hearing about it for the first time. My, you're free. You've been free for two and a half years. Well, nobody told me. I want to take that history and look at another history. I want to share a quotation from you, uh, with you from... Uh, a book called Ministry of Healing, which is all about the healing ministry of Jesus. This is good. So I'm going to read this to you right now. Jesus knows the circumstances of every soul, and that is, that is wonderfully assuring for me and I hope for you. He knows exactly why I do what I do. He knows exactly why you do what you do. He knows it. The greater the sinner's guilt, the more he or she needs the Savior. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that something? The better you are, the more you need him. Keep reading. 
Jesus' heart of divine love and sympathy is drawn out most of all, most of all, for the one who is the most hopelessly entangled in the snares of the enemy. Some of you have been fighting this enemy from the get-go. So have we all. But some of you have really had a fight on your hand. We all have had it. But it's more obvious to you. That entanglement, the more hopeless it feels, the more Jesus draws closer to you. He's going he's to set you free. He is going to deliver your soul. Now, here comes the line. With his own blood, he has signed the emancipation papers of the race, end quote. Like those slaves in Texas, it is possible there are human beings living today. They may be living right next door to you who have never heard that they have been set free from the slavery of sin. Never heard it at all. You know what? Sometimes you and I act as if we've never heard it either. Like Calvary got signed 2,000 years ago, and how come we're not living like, like uh, we've been set free? We're living like we're in bondage. Every day we mope through the day. I'm in bondage. I'm in bondage. No, with his blood, he has signed the emancipation papers of the race, Calvary. Calvary has set us free 2,000 years ago. Wow. There's a line right at the end of, uh, of uh, chapter 5 here in Romans. I like this in the old King James, by the way. But where sin abounded, grace did what? Come on, help me out. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Yep. That's it. The more sin there is, the greater the outpouring of grace. You can't out, you can't out sin grace. That's the point. Ah, hallelujah. The first Adam, the first Adam got us into trouble, but the second Adam got us out. Hallelujah. What do you say? Amen. Amen. No kidding. And therein lies the glorious truth for Noah, for you, and for me, and, listen, listen, and maybe for Ham. Would that bother you if Ham ended up getting saved before he died? Is there some, is there some sin, sexual sin, too abhorrent, too gross for Jesus to forgive? Is there some alcoholic too abhorrent, too gross for Jesus to save? Of course not. Of course not. The truth is that Jesus who forgave Peter would have forgiven Judas if only Judas had asked. Noah asked. How do we know that Noah asked? Because he ends up in the Bible Hall of Fame. Oh, my, what a distinction. He is the only entry probably in the Bible's Hall of Fame who unwittingly but unwisely drank himself into a naked stupor, and he ends up in the Bible Hall of Fame because he asked, and God forgave him. Forgiven. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Oh, it doesn't get any better than that. But here's the deal. Not only is there no sin that God cannot forget, there is no sin that you and I must dilly-dally in dealing with. Come on. We're living closer to the return of Jesus. This lockdown has just shown us that if God wants to pull the plug on the human race, he can do it globally in a matter of hours. Gone. This is not the time to say manana. This is the time to say, Lord Jesus, get me out of this lockdown. Get me out of the lockdown of sin. I bring my sin to you. I bring it to the foot of your cross. This is yours. You take it. You died for me. 
I receive your death at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. I love that. At the cross. Today, we're going to the cross in just a split second. You get to go. You say, I didn't, bring, I didn't get any kit. Don't worry about the kit. You just, you just go to the cross. It's going to be beautiful. And you'll be blessed. Because in your mind and my mind, we're taking our sins. Nobody else knows it. Nobody else knows those sins but God. We're taking our sins and we're laying them at the nail-scarred feet of Jesus and we're saying, you may have it. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. God has victory for you. You can deal with it. And God will bring you through. He brought Noah through. You may end up in the Hall of Fame yourself. Why not? Today. We'll go to that cross. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.